Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we continue our investigation into Capote's Coterie, this time with a, another kind of swan altogether, Pamela. Pamela Digby, Churchill Hayward Harriman, if you count all the names up in her marriages, and that doesn't even include her lovers, Pamela really did have that thing. Pamela's story is unique and unlikely to ever be repeated. It is safe to say that no one could have predicted the impact that Pamela would have on 20th century politics, society, or industry when she was growing up in the Dorset countryside. Her life is a testament to resilience, determination, and reinvention, and that is at a minimum. Pamela was the everything, everywhere, all at once swan. Investigators settle in. Pamela's story is quite a journey and connected into all the things. Her life is really something. Throughout her life, Pamela would be a snubbed debutante, a trusted confidant and loyal companion to her father-in-law, Winston Churchill, a paramour to some of the world's richest men, a high society cast-off, a despised stepmother, a formidable political consultant, an accomplished diplomat, and a charismatic enigma. Her lord of men was a mystery to many people, but whatever your opinions are about Pamela Harriman, it cannot be denied that she was a fighter, a charmer, a seductress, who simply refused to give up. Throughout her life, Pamela continued to go after exactly what she wanted and was always willing to do whatever it took to get it. Although she spent most of her life as a modern-day courtesan, she ended her life as a respected diplomat. In the glamorous and center-stage way she lived, she died in the same fashion. Pamela Harriman suffered a stroke while swimming in the pool at the Ritz Hotel in Paris, where decades earlier she witnessed the liberation of Paris alongside Ernest Hemingway. Pamela's only son, Winston Churchill, was mostly abandoned by his mother and left with a family or nannies while Pamela went to pursue her own interests and desires. The younger Churchill became a member of Parliament and, as an adult, told biographer Christopher Ogden, quote, my mother was too busy whoring around, unquote, for him to enjoy Christmas when he was a child. Pamela's list of love affairs would rival any character in a Danielle Steele novel. Her lovers were the wealthiest and most powerful men in the 20th century. She had that magnetic quality of making them feel like they were the center of the universe and the gift of making them think that they were the most important person in the world. At the age of 73 years old, People Magazine named Pamela one of the 50 most beautiful people in the world. This was in 1993. Pamela and Gregory Peck were the only septuagenarians on that list. Truman Capote looked upon Pamela with sort of a bemused respectfulness, calling her quote-unquote a 
marvelous primitive. Growing up in a time when a young woman really had to rely on men to build a successful life, Pamela was ever willing to work within that system. She learned her skills of seduction early in life, and her love affairs were still of interest to gossip columnists when she was 75 years old, which is quite a testament. Pamela Digby, Churchill Hayward Harriman, The Everything, Everywhere, All at Once Swan. Let's investigate. Pamela Digby was born March 20th, 1920 to Edward Digby, the 11th Baron Digby, and Constance Pamela Alice Bruce, the daughter of the second Baron Aberdale. Remember in our peerage system over in the UK, the Baron title is in the peerage, but it is at that lowest level. Pamela's father is described as sweet and kind, and Pamela's mother is described as a social climber and will most certainly pass those expectations on to her daughter. Always reaching mom is, and after Pamela is born, conveniently after, really, Pamela's grandfather dies, giving Pamela's father his title, inheriting some family land and wealth. There is a home in Grubsner Place in London, a castle in Ireland as well. But alas, inheritance taxes are a thing. Dad is selling some of that property. Pamela's father will even get a job to help pay for those taxes. In a little bit of a twist, the Digbys will move the family to Australia after their castle in Ireland burns in 1922, set fire, the castle was, by Irish nationalists after the partition of Ireland. Down in Australia, Dad wins big at the racetrack. The Digby family will come on back to England. A few more kids happen with Mom and Dad along the way. Our fair Pamela will be the oldest of four children, three girls and a boy. Here in the Dorset countryside, it is a classic upbringing for Pamela. Governesses and horses and all through her life, Pamela will tell of house parties and growing up in the Dorset countryside and this very glamorous social thing that her family was into, but investigators, they were not. The Digbys don't have that kind of cash, no matter how lucky Dad is at the racetrack. They are part of the British aristocracy, but the lowest rung. Remember again, global here. Dogs make everything very beautiful. Duke, Marquis, Earl, Viscount, Baron. The Digby family does have a title and some lands, but not a lot of cash. The accumulated property of the family pulls in about £16,000 a year. A family with more substantial wealth would be looking at about £75,000 per year. So the Digbys are making it, £16,000, nothing to laugh at, but they are not as wealthy or as prominent or as glamorous as Pamela will boast about in her later years. As the British aristocracy peerage set goes, her family is not as remarkable as some others. But hey, Pamela, 
She comes by it, honestly. Her father is a real stand-up chap. He's educated at the best schools. Pamela's father was the youngest officer to command a Coldstream Brigade in World War I. Dad was wounded twice. He wins some medals. Mom, on the other hand, remember, kind of a social climber. But the one thing that Pamela's mother has is a strong belief in Pamela. Pamela's mother does her a tremendous service in life, setting up her daughter with the most tremendous confidence. Pamela, you are the most beautiful. She will tell Pamela and everyone else, anyone else really who would listen. But at the same time, in reality, Pamela is thought of to be a little chubby and not at all that good looking. So Pamela grows up thinking she's the most beautiful girl in the room, thanks to mom's confidence building, but again, not the general conception of our young Pamela. Mama is key here to install a few other lessons to Pamela, mainly how to hide your feelings, that's number one, and never complain, that's number two. Pamela's mom really is a testament to fall down seven times, stand up eight. If you get knocked down, you get up again. There is literally simply no other choice, Pamela. It's not the worst set of confidence skills to gain in life. So Pamela, born in 1920, in 1937, she's about 17 years old, Pamela is sent to Munich to attend boarding school. Here, (laughs) really does come together, y'all. Pamela, everything, everywhere, all at once. Pamela in Munich in 1937 is introduced by her friend, the infamous Unity Mitford, to Adolf Hitler. World War II is looming here. Pamela is back in London by 1938 and really, really bored with the Dorset countryside. Pamela, along with 1,000 other aristocratic women, will be presented at court. There are naturally dances and balls and a whole season for the wealthiest of families. We have covered the Prince Edward feathers and the debutantes back within our investigation. Helpfully, (laughs) Pamela's dad goes back to the racetrack and wins big again. So fortunately, the Digbys are able to fund a little bit better of a season for Pamela than she normally would have had. Dad wins it big at the Grand National. So the Digbys are able to present Pamela in a way that was more advantageous than what they normally would have been able to do. But Pamela's debutante season is not really considered super successful. Even though Dad got a little cash, the Digbys can't afford all the trimmings and Pamela is competing with wealthier girls, prettier girls. Her dance card is not often filled. The general perception of Pamela at this time, so at 18, y'all, this is how much her life turns. Pamela at this time is considered chubby, pushy, and not at all appealing to men. Nancy Mitford, sister of Unity, will write about Pamela Digby. She was a redhead bouncing little thing regarded as a joke by her contemporaries. Now, if you're feeling bad for Pamela, don't. (laughs) She's about to show them all. So after debutante season, Pamela will stay in London and begin to explore her courtesan ways. 
definitely has a preference for dating older men. She's making some quick trips to Paris. Pamela, at this point in her young life, is extremely deft and skilled at getting men to give her money and gifts. This is going to be a lifelong skill for Pamela. And it's going well enough for her here in her late teenage years, pre-World War II, and then there is a blind date, sort of. I would call it a meet-cute, but it's not really a meet-cute. Let's meet the first husband of Pamela Digby. So one day, Pamela's hanging out with Lady Mary Dunn, who is friends with Randolph Churchill, who needs a date one night. And Lady Mary says to Randolph, hey, I know who you can take out on a date. This is translated to, if you'd like to have dinner with a beautiful redhead. Lady Mary Dunn will say what she really said was, if you want to have dinner with a redheaded whore, go round to my flat and you will find her. So, sure enough, Randolph will go seek out Pamela for a date. There is a dinner and then dancing at the Ritz. Randolph Churchill proposes to Pamela that very night. This is a very quick romance. So you're asking, is this love at first sight or something else perhaps? Randolph Churchill was the only son of Winston and Clementine Churchill, making Randolph Churchill the grandson of Jenny Jerome. We have mentioned many of these names within our done and done journey. Randolph was intelligent and confident and handsome and very spoiled. He was gifted in a lot of ways, but Randolph also enjoyed gambling and drinking excessively and was already well-known about town for his womanizing. Randolph Churchill was called Randy, and not just because it was short for Randolph. He was quite Randy. Randy is most interested in women who were not at all suitable, at least according to his parents. These would include showgirls. He also liked women who were not available, meaning married women. One of Randy's many notable flings was with a young beauty named Claire Brokaw. Claire would later become very famous for her writing and be known as Claire Booth Luce. She'll go on to write the play The Women, one of my favorites. We're going to have a future not done yet about Claire Booth Luce and her follow-ups. Today, it's Pamela, and let's get back to talking about by the time that Randolph meets Pamela, his reputation as a rude and unreliable and unpredictable chauvinist was already widely known. Randolph is not at all interested in settling down and making a commitment with anyone, but Randolph also has the family burden, so to speak, of needing to marry and produce an heir to the Churchill name. World War II on the horizon, Randolph was convinced that he would die in the war and felt he had no time at all to waste in finding a wife. At the time of this not-so-meet-cute between Randolph and Pamela, <laughs> in the last two weeks before they met, Randolph had proposed to five other women all five of those women had turned him down. Many people warned Pamela that this was a huge mistake. Do not marry Randolph Churchill, but Pamela was pretty determined. While the prospect of marrying someone who admits they don't love you and 
just wants you to have a child before they die in war doesn't sound altogether too appealing for Pamela, she reckoned. It was her best prospect. Pamela knew the marriage to Randolph would get her away from the countryside life of her parents, but more importantly, Pamela would get that Churchill name. Years later, Pamela told an interviewer at the Washington Post about her marriage to Randolph. Pamela says, I was getting so terribly upset by seeing all my friends going off as they dramatically thought to be killed, and I thought how marvelous it was to be with somebody about whom I didn't give a damn. (laughs) The couple married on October the 4th, 1939, just three weeks after their blind date, if we want to call it that. There is nothing quite like a wartime romance or arrangement. So here, Randolph Churchill is stationed away from London, so Pamela ends up spending most of her time with her father-in-law, Winston Churchill, who had recently just been named Prime Minister. Pamela was with Winston Churchill at 10 Downing Street, the bomb shelter below the residence, or at the Churchill's country retreat. For whatever reason, Winston loved Pamela, and the two had a very deep bond. Pamela was very attentive to her father-in-law, listened to him endlessly, and was steadfast in her devotion to him and his beliefs. The thing about Winston, he loved Pamela's boorish sense of humor. Pamela does her part in giving birth to a son, Winston Spencer Churchill. This happens right at a year after they're married. Winston Spencer Churchill was born October 10th, 1940. And the Boy grandchild and namesake of Winston Churchill certainly cemented Pamela's position not only in the Churchill family, but also in the heart of her father-in-law. During the war, when Winston Churchill would confide in Pamela about his doubts and concerns and the necessity of the United States to join forces with the Allies, it gives Pamela tremendous confidence Pamela realizes here that all men, no matter how powerful, had self-doubt and vulnerabilities. Pamela would take this lesson, this knowledge, and most certainly use it to her advantage throughout her life. Winston Churchill realized, on the other hand, that he could use Pamela's beauty and charms to his advantage. Winston thought it was possible that Pamela could help convince the, you know, United States to hop on board to this World War II thing. Avril Harriman and Harry Hopkins were Roosevelt's right-hand men in London. Winston Churchill knows that if he was going to get the United States to join the war, that it would have to start by persuading Avril Harriman and Harry Hopkins. So what happens? Winston begins bringing Pamela to diplomatic dinners and cocktail parties at the aptly named Churchill Club, perhaps the Savoy Hotel, the Dorchester Hotel, sophisticated spots Pamela is working her way into, and at this time, Avril Harriman is 49 years old and married to Marie Norton Whitney. 
The Whitney part of this name is from Marie Norton's first marriage to Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney. Marie Norton's second marriage was to Avril Harriman. So when Avril Harriman meets a 20-year-old Pamela Digby Churchill, Pamela describes her reaction as, I never set eyes on a more beautiful man in my life. There's something there immediately with Avril and Pamela. Quickly, though, Pamela becomes friends with the other guy needed, Harry Hopkins. And in due time, doesn't take really long at all, Pamela becomes lovers with Avril Harriman. Avril Harriman will put Pamela up in a residence in Grubsner Square under the guise that she was his daughter's friend. Very convenient ruse. The affair that young Pamela and Avril Harriman are carrying on makes Pamela even more enormously influential and useful to her father-in-law. Avril Harriman is the most powerful American in England. Pamela's got the inside access, right? So she's able to tell Winston Churchill about Avril Harriman's private views and the position of the United States in going to war. Now, this is not the only thing Pamela's doing. She's kind of a busy lady. While carrying on her affair with Avril Harriman, (laughs) Pamela was also simultaneously having affairs with her Grosvenor Square neighbor, John J. Jock Whitney, who will soon be divorced from Lil Altimus, one of our Palm Beach ladies. We know through our investigation that Jock Whitney will go on to marry Betsy Cushing, the sister of Babe Paley. Jock Whitney would also later become the U.S. ambassador to Britain. It really does weave together throughout the decades. So Pamela, sleeping with Harriman, sleeping with Whitney, Pamela's also having an affair at this time with respected CBS broadcaster Edward R. Murrow, who Pamela meets through another lover of hers, the head of CBS, William S. Paley, husband of Babe. Pamela has a lot going on, y'all. So during the Blitz, there were always important military and diplomatic men coming to London, and Winston Churchill relied on Pamela and her charm to entertain them. Pamela will once describe her skills at seducing men as making them believe the whole universe revolved around only them. She said it really has nothing to do with what happens in bed. Whatever her secret was, there was no doubt that men were enchanted by Pamela. So for as long as the war was going on, Pamela's in her element. She had a job, and she is really good at it. She's in the middle of all the action. She's playing a key role for her father-in-law. However, when the war is over, so was Pamela's marriage to Randy. Randolph Churchill and Pamela divorce in 1946 when the war is over. At that point, right, Winston Churchill no longer needs Pamela to entertain for him. Avril Harriman will return to the United States and to his wife, who he remains married to until Marie's death in 1970. Put a pin in that one, Avril Harriman will be coming back into the story. Randolph Churchill, for his part, will marry again, but two interesting bits here. Randolph Churchill not doing too great. 
Noel Coward quipped that Randolph was utterly unspoiled by failure. Imagine that as your tagline from Noel Coward. Randy was also blackballed from the Beef Steak Club and also on one occasion was slapped twice across the face by Duff Cooper at the Paris Embassy for making an obnoxious remark. Again, the roller coaster of nothing's linear and everything's connected. What's up with Pamela? She's had quite a ride through the World War II years in London, and the thing I want you to know is that Pamela had fallen deeply in love with the brooding and intellectually stimulating Edward R. Murrow. Unfortunately for Pamela, Edward R. Murrow was married. However, Murrow was so in love with Pamela, he proposes marriage. Pamela thinks that her future seems happy and settled. However, when Edward R. Murrow flew home to tell his wife he wanted a divorce, Murrow learns that his wife, after 10 childless years, is pregnant. He makes the decision to stay with his wife, sending Pamela a telegram, breaking the news that the two lovers could not be together. As you can imagine, Pamela was heartbroken. Here she is, a divorcee, not held in very high regard by respectable members of London society. It was time for Pamela to figure out her next move. So without many options left in England, Pamela will head to Paris to make a new life for herself. Helpfully, in post-war Paris, that Churchill name meant even more than it did in England. An additional bonus of Paris was that Pamela's risque reputation only made her more attractive in France. Pamela quickly becomes an integral member of the British expat embassy community, which includes Kick Kennedy and Lady Diana Cooper. Y'all, it's just too much. So many of these names and stories have been told in our investigation, but don't you just love how it all comes together? We're going to get into a few more connections here. Let's spend a little time with some of the lovers of Pamela Digby Churchill by this point. She will carry on affairs with dozens of important men, many of these in long-term relationships. The few names in the list of Pamela's affairs, some we've heard about before in our investigation, Henry Mortimer, Max Beaverbrook, Stanley Mortimer, Frank Sinatra, Prince Rainier of Monaco, Major General Fred Anderson, Gerald Vanderkemp. The list goes on and on, everything, everywhere, all at once. There is a reason that Pamela is the courtesan of the 20th century. I want to look a little bit further into a few more of these affairs during this post-World War II time that will now be a little bit more meaningful into our investigation. First up, Prince Ali Khan. Pamela first meets Prince Ali Khan at the annual Grand Prix Ball that he hosted. Pamela will attend that ball with Kick Kennedy. Prince Ali Khan at the time was 36 years old and the son of the billionaire leader of 25 Muslim countries, the Aga Khan. Despite having been educated partially in London and being fabulously wealthy, 
Prince Ali Khan had never really been accepted into English society. So Prince Ali Khan pays English society back by winning all of their women, as he once said. Prince Ali had a reputation for being popular with the women and, of course, being an amazing lover. He was first married to heiress Joan Guinness, who had divorced her husband, Lowell Guinness, in 1936 to marry Ali Khan. Now, Pam and Ali Khan soon become lovers, and Pam was most certainly kept in luxury during her affair with the prince. He had recently purchased, I have chills, the Chateau de la Horizon, which had become the hub of high-class carousing on the Riviera. The parties thrown at the chateau had become legendary and put Pamela at the absolute center of cafe society. It was apparently Ali Khan who taught Pamela the technique of intensely gazing at whoever is talking with hypnotic interest. This is a skill that Pamela would further cultivate and perfect. By 1948, Prince Ali Khan had become obsessed with a new lady, actress Rita Hayworth. Hayworth at the time was in the south of France, trying to reconcile with her estranged husband, Orson Welles, who was in Italy at the time. Prince Ali Khan will leave Pamela for Rita Hayworth, whom he would go on to marry in May 1949. Next up, the husband of one of our high society swans. You know him, Fiat owner Gianni Agnelli, husband to Morella. So much like a James Bond film, Gianni Agnelli's yacht brought him to La Horizon one afternoon for lunch, just helpfully at the same time that Pamela was in the market for a new suitor. Agnelli, as we know, was the extraordinarily wealthy heir to the Fiat fortune and known in Europe as the unofficial king of Italy. Gianni and Pamela hit it off right away. Pamela sees her chance and, like a dog with a bone, is not going to let it go. Pamela was kept by Agnelli in very high style for five years. Pamela is desperately hoping for Gianni to put a ring on it, and in that hope, Pamela really becomes what she believes the perfect Italian woman would be, should be. She took to speaking English with an Italian accent. Pamela also converts to Catholicism to try to land Gianni Agnelli. The late Sandy Bertrand, publisher of Vogue magazine, said, quote, Having Pam as a mistress was like joining a club that grew more prestigious with each new lover. Avril was the first one. He created a sort of pull that brought the others along. People at that level look at each other and say, well, if Avril Harriman was a distinguished and wealthy man, and if he could have this girl, she must be quite something. Let's find out. Gianni Agnelli, for his part, not only got a lover from this relationship, Pamela will help him in business, too. After Fiat, his company, had formerly been identified with the Italian fascists, the Churchill name did a lot to improve Fiat's image. Pamela helped Agnelli secure distribution in the United States for Fiat, 
and her connection with FDR's son, FDR Jr., led to insider status with the United States government, leading to large loans, which were much needed after the war. Ultimately, though, Gianni Agnelli, a fervent Catholic, said it was just simply out of the question for him to marry a divorced woman. As we know, Gianni will go on to marry Morella, one of our high society swans, but don't worry about Pamela, she doesn't walk away empty-handed. Gianni Agnelli gives her an apartment in Paris and a Bentley. Pam sweetly asks Gianni, but what will happen to me once the news breaks that he just certainly isn't going to marry her? And Gianni Agnelli answers with a monthly allowance for the next several years, which is really helpful for Pamela. What happens now? Oh, goodness. It is not too long before a new suitor comes calling. Enter Baron Elida Rothschild, who meets Pamela at a party in Paris in 1954. Elida Rothschild wanted Pamela for a mistress, and de Rothschild was not only part of the famous wealthy aristocratic family, the de Rothschilds, but also a celebrated winemaker. Elise said, I wanted to go to bed with Pam, and I did. According to Sally Battlesmith, Pamela Harriman's biographer, Rothschild joked about not minding Pam's promiscuous past, saying, Once it's washed, it's just like new. That's where it gets a little complicated. See, Elida Rothschild has a wife. Her name is Lillianne, and she is very much aware of the affair that her husband is having with Pamela. According to Sally Bettle-Smith, one night while sitting at dinner next to the Duke of Windsor, the Duke asked the table which Rothschild was having an affair with Pamela Churchill. Lillianne stopped eating and looked straight ahead and in a very matter-of-fact manner replied to the entire table with, My husband, sir. Now, is Pamela simply only carrying on one affair here? <laughs> Come on. She's everything, everywhere, all at once. Pamela is having multiple affairs with lots of other people while her affair with the Rothschild was happening. One person on this list was the popular and prolific French novelist, Maurice Druon. Another was Alfonso de Portago. De Portago was the inheritor of the oldest title in Spain and also an Olympic competitor in race car driving. Pamela's affair with Elita Rothschild will end, but he too continues <laughs> to provide a consistent income for Pamela. So what has she got going on? Funds coming in now from several previous lovers, allowing Pam to travel and live a life of privilege while not being formally kept by any one man. Pam becomes what is a Migratory socialite, she'll spend winter months in popular destinations like San Moritz. She'll go to Paris in June for the polo season, back in London in July for the Derby, down to the Riviera in August. Each location was carefully chosen to put Pamela in proximity to wealthy and powerful men, bringing up, oh my... Pamela to the Riviera, where she will meet Greek shipping magnate 
Stavros Niarchos. Goodness, Niarchos, the rival and nemesis of Aristotle Onassis, Niarchos had made billions shipping petroleum around the world. Niarchos and Pamela become lovers while he is married to his third wife. Niarchos will eventually be married five times, but he is romantically involved with dozens of women throughout his lifetime. Being, you know, a billionaire, Niarchos had homes all around the world as well as a large yacht. Pamela was eager to please Niarchos and keep him happy. For his part, Niarchos really likes Pamela's fun side and her access to English nobility who (laughs) control much of the shipping market world at the time. So here between these two, Niarchos and Pamela, it doesn't last long. Their affair is relatively brief. And according to many accounts of contemporaries, they were very, very ill-matched. It's important to know that Niarchos was not a pleasant man and would often criticize Pamela in public when they were together. No one thought of them as being in love. Definitely not a love match. So by the late 1950s, Niarchos is burned out. Pamela, burning many lovers here or having them dump her, Pam decides she needs some new hunting grounds. At this point, Pamela is middle-aged. She feels like she is really losing her looks, and her appeal over in Paris is waning. She had failed to secure her next marriage with any of her prosperous European lovers. Also, another little bit of a hiccup, Lillianne, do you remember Healy de Rothschild's wife, sideswipes Pamela's car in Paris trying to kill Pamela. So Pamela thinks Paris might be a little bit too hot for her. It was time to find a new place in the world. And off to the Big Apple does our gal go, where everything will change all at once again for Pamela. It does not take too much time in the Big Apple in New York City before Pamela sets her sights on a new man, this time Leland Hayward who at the time is married to our high society swan, Slim, with whom Pamela had met Slim a few times and they had several mutual friends. At the time, Leland Hayward was a legendary producer and agent in Hollywood and on Broadway. Leland Hayward was gruff and masculine on the outside, but very needy on the inside. His marriage to Slim was on the rocks. Slim had recently admitted to having a one-night stand with Frank Sinatra, as well as a six-month-long affair with Peter Vertel, who was Leland's screenwriter on the film The Old Man in the Sea, original novel written by Ernest Hemingway, great friend of Slim. See how it all comes back around. In general, the marriage of Slim and Leland at this point had turned stale. Many problems had developed. Slim was not having her needs for adventure or excitement or sexual fulfillment met. Leland was not having his need for adoration, for pampering met. This is a bad, bad combination. Remember back in 1958, here's where it all comes together. 
Back in 1958, Lauren Bacall, Betty, had invited her friend Slim to travel to Europe. This is Betty Bacall's attempt to get her life moving a year after Humphrey Bogart's death. And Slim was already scheduled to go with Leland Hayward to Munich to meet with Baroness Maria von Trapp, thinking about making a little movie, you know, about her life called The Sound of Music. Leland offered to meet his wife and Betty Bacall in Paris and then go on with Slim to Munich. Slim and Betty off to their European adventure. How fortunes do turn on one phone call. Because remember, right before Slim and Betty take off, Babe Paley calls Slim. Babe says that, oh no, her sister, Betsy Cushing, was sending Pamela Churchill for the weekend to entertain and Betsy's husband, Jock Whitney, again, American ambassador to Great Britain, good friend, former lover of Pamela Churchill. Holy cats, Pamela Churchill's going to be in town, but the Whitneys were not going to be in town, so Betsy offers her sister, Babe Paley, and her husband, William S. Paley, as alternative hosts. Pamela's had affairs with both of their husbands. Y'all, I can't even with the story. Okay, so Babe had gotten tickets to the theater for Pamela and was trying to find her an escort, and Slim and Babe put their heads together and decide that, oh, let Leland take her. Leland Hayward would be a perfect escort since Slim would be gone with Betty and it's fine and whoa, have you met Pamela Churchill? She turns all of her charms on Leland Hayward, laser focuses her attention. Leland Hayward at this time, hungry for female attention, oh, a little coddling too, a really good ego boost by the most famous courtesan of the 20th century. <laughs> Leland is a sitting duck, perfect target for all of Pamela's skills as a seductress. Pamela and Leland begin their affair that night. Brooke Hayward, Leland's daughter, recalls the conversation with her father when he explained that he was going to marry Pamela, even though he was already still married to Slim. Leland Hayward does confirm to his daughter that Pamela is the greatest courtesan of the 20th century, and perhaps she was. This affair with Pamela and Leland rocks cafe society. I do have our man Truman. You're like, hey, at least you're going to talk about Truman in this episode. You bet I am. I have Truman Capote dishing in two particular letters to his friend Cecil Beaton about everything going down on the scene. These letters are pulled from a volume called Too Brief a Treat, The Letters of Truman Capote. This is edited by Gerald Clark, Capote's biographer. First up, this is to Cecil Beaton from Clark's Island, Duxbury, Massachusetts. Truman pens this the 15th of July, 1959. Dearest C, I so enjoy the picture of you sunning in Gainsborough costumes in the garden. Well, it is exciting news that at least the play will be done. This is the play Gypsy on Broadway. I think Donald Wolfit would be excellent. Have you cast the daughters yet? I long for all the news. When it opens, where? It would be nice for me if I could arrange a quick flight over to see it. Who knows? I have not heard from Slim since early June, at which time she was in Spain. 
I believe she's still in Europe, but lately I have become very concerned by her silence. So your item about Leland and Pam C. stunned me. I'd heard nothing about it. Babe, who is in Biarritz, did not mention it in her last letter, though that reached here several weeks ago. Toward the end of May, just before I came back, I saw Leland and Mrs. C. in a -a tete-a-tete at a restaurant, and I kidded them and said I was going to write Slim, who'd already left for Europe, while Leland was supposed to join in a week but never did. As a matter of fact, with my usual gaucherie, I did write Slim asking if she knew her husband was running around with the notorious Mrs. C. Oh, dear. Are you sure it's true? Has he really left Slim? Please write me what you know. Please here is underlined. I am devoted to Slim and I'm amazed she hasn't written me. I must find out where she is at once. Everything here goes well. Really love the house and I'm working hard. Jackson's best. All good luck with the play. My darling friend, love, T. Truman is a little bit obsessed with what's happening to his friend Slim Keith here. We do have a letter the following week. This is penned July 23rd to Bennett Cerf and his wife Phyllis. And here Truman writes, uh, just taking a quick section out of this, I am very worried about Slim. She was really shocked over Leland and dear Pam. She's been staying with the Paleys and Biarritz, but now they're coming home. And I hope she does too. I wish she would come and stay with me. Truman's super worried about Slim trying to get the lowdown, trying to get what's happening. We're going to carry on now to August for this other letter to Cecil Beaton. This is still from Clark's Island and Duxbury. This is dated August 24th, 1959. I'm rolling down to our cafe society bit. Uh, Dearest C, have just returned to the island from a week's visit with the Paleys in New Hampshire. It was the first time I'd been away but I do not enjoy households overrun with children, so it was delicious returning home to this with isolation and peace. I would not mind living here all the time and just making forays into the world. From having been the most gregarious of persons, I seem increasingly to require huge doses of privacy. At the Paleys, who, by the way, are in great spirits and beautiful shape, there was much talk about what is termed Topic A, the Hayward Churchill Fandango. I had a long letter from Slim, very touching, very regretful, but full of good sense. It seems that Leland has never asked her for a divorce, although Mrs. C tells everyone she will be Mrs. H in November. The whole thing has caused a quote-unquote situation among the Cushing girls. Yeah, I bet it did a great situation among the Cushing girls. Truman continues, Babe and Minnie have vowed undying enmity to you, quote-unquote, that bitch, whose sister Betsy is Mrs. C's greatest partisan. So grateful is she that the threat to her own happy home has been removed. Remember, it all comes back around. Toot New York is divided into warring camps, the pro-slim contingent, led by Mrs. Paley with Jerome Robbins and Mainbacher as its seconds in command, 
have already sent Mrs. Leonora Hornblow to the firing squad because she gave a dinner for Leland and Mrs. C, which was odd, considering she'd always been so close a friend of Slim. No doubt Mrs. C will be the winner in the coming contest. Needless to say, I am a Slimite to the death. Of course, the whole story is sad and stupid. I feel endlessly sorry for Slim and the hurtful role she has to play. It is something she could have so easily been spared, except for Mrs. C's blabbermouth tactics. Anyway, she's coming home September 15th to face the music. It has been beautiful weather here, and today has the blue-burning clarity of Greece, though autumn can be felt when you stand in the shade. Whoa, y'all, it all goes terribly. Everybody's fighting with everybody. Everybody's drawn aside, but what did Truman say? Pamela's going to win this battle? Pamela sure does. She is going to get what she wants. Leland Hayward and Pamela Churchill marry in Nevada in 1960 on the very same day as his divorce from Slim is final. Pamela and Leland live a highly extravagant lifestyle. They spend tremendous amounts of money. It has been reported that Pamela was spending close to $10,000 a year on flowers. This is throughout the 1960s. That would be $80,000 a year on flowers. In today's money, according to Brooke Hayward again, Pamela had more jewelry and diamonds than she had ever seen in a jewelry store. Leland and the new Mrs. Hayward were also fine art connoisseurs. They buy and collect beautiful and expensive pieces of art. When Brooke Hayward was married to Dennis Hopper, the two come to New York for Dennis to do a television show and they will visit Leland Hayward, her father, and Pamela, new wife, at their New York City apartment. Here, Dennis Hopper admires a painting on the wall. Pamela immediately says to Leland, I think we should leave this painting to a museum, meaning Pamela was very territorial and didn't want Leland's children to get what Pamela considered to be rightfully hers. About her father's attraction to Pamela, Brooke tells Sally Bedell Smith, I didn't get it. There was no razzle-dazzle. I couldn't figure this out. She didn't know about politics or the theater. She was a banal milkmaid, a little plump, certainly not beautiful. She wore expensive clothes, but she didn't have flair. Pamela got what she wanted, though, and will continue to have Leland Hayward what she wanted until February 1971, where Leland Hayward had a massive stroke and died about four weeks later. When his will was read, there was very little left in his estate. Pamela and Leland had spent so freely during their marriage that Leland Hayward's tremendous wealth and earnings were all but gone. Brooke Hayward said after the reading of the will, that Pam was furious, so furious that Brooke thought Pam would have a heart attack. It's hard to know how much exaggeration is in that description from Brooke, but even Pamela's brother, Lord Digby, said that Pamela spent a lot of time crying, that she was ruined, and described his sister as being very concerned. Again, Brooke Hayward and her stepmother, Pamela, 
quite a tumultuous relationship, and believe it or not, our man Nick was around for it. His wife, Lenny Dunn, was a tremendous friend of Brooke Hayward's. They were all running around in that same exclusive Hollywood scene in the early 1960s. There'll be a bit more about that investigation coming shortly for you. But again, don't worry too much about Pamela because within six months, Pamela will be married again. It is time to take that pin that we put in Avril Harriman right back out because I told you he'd be coming back around again. Goodness, Pamela, can't stop, won't stop. So Pamela Churchill Hayward, after settling Leland's affairs and taking a brief trip to Palm Springs to spend a little time with Frank Sinatra, Pamela's going to head back over to Europe. I know it's probably hard to believe, but in New York City, Pamela's not really very welcome at many social functions. Most married women are all on the alert after Leland Hayward's death about Pamela. She is viewed with much skepticism, much suspicion, and it's really no wonder, right? Pamela will later say, that was the only time in my life that I was desolate. Back over in Europe, Pamela will live in her son Winston's apartment near Parliament that she referred to as a closet. Brooke Astor said of Pamela during this time, she realized she was more American than English. Pamela will return home feeling depressed and panicked. During that time, holy cats, Washington Post editor Catherine Graham was getting ready to host a dinner party. Catherine's daughter, Lally Weymouth, lived near Pamela and decided that she doesn't want to go to this dinner party that Catherine Graham, her mom, is having. So, Lally calls her mom and suggests that Catherine fill that spot with Pamela since she was feeling so low and would love to be asked. Oh my, Catherine Graham, another swan coming within our Capote's Coterie arc so very soon. Needless to say, Catherine Graham asked Pamela. Pamela happily accepted the dinner invitation. Pamela flies to Washington, D.C. for the party, and when she arrived, she noticed that the 76-year-old Avril Harriman was there. Conveniently, Avril had been widowed the previous year. The two enjoyed each other's company as much as they did all the way back in the 1940s London times and agreed to get together again. Peter Duchin, Avril Harriman's godson and future husband of Brooke Hayward, <laughs> recalls coming home after a dinner with friends and flipping on the lights and finding the two, Pamela and Avril Harriman, cozy on the couch. Peter Duchin says, Avril's top was open and his pants were undone. It was like catching two teenagers. Pamela and Avril had obviously picked up their wartime romance right where they left off. Since their romance in London, Avril Harriman had been posted as ambassador to Moscow, secretary of commerce was the governor of New York, a confidant to John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr., as well as a respected leader in the Democratic Party. Harriman is loaded, which helps. He's an heir to the Wells Fargo and Union Pacific Railroad fortunes. 
When he reunites with Pamela, one of his advisors comments about the checks, (laughs) you're never going to believe it, that they'd already been sending to her every month for the last 30 years. And Avril Harriman's like, what are you talking about? And his accountants helpfully let Harriman know that his estate had been sending Pamela a monthly check for the last three decades. It is eight weeks after that reunion at dinner at Catherine Graham's that Pamela and Avril Harriman marry September 27, 1971. Avril was happy with Pamela, and Pamela was devoted to him. He had long been lonely and longed for companionship since the death of his wife the previous year. And Pamela, for her part, was thrilled to be reunited with Avril again and to live that lifestyle. And not only does Avril Harriman have cash, lots of cash, loads of cash, Harriman is also esteemed. He lives in powerful political circles. Pamela sees this as her ticket back to social prominence and respectability. According to Alita Morgan, Harriman's granddaughter, Pamela immediately started taking over Avril's life and controlling who he saw. When Morgan came to visit her grandfather after the marriage, the doorman told her that she would now have to make an appointment. Alita Morgan would never see her grandfather alone again, neither did her sister or her mother. Pamela would intercept notes, listen in on phone calls, and never leave her husband alone one moment with his family. The first Christmas that they were married, Peter Duchin, Avril's godson and confidant, received a tie as his gift for the holidays. When Peter Duchin was previously used to receiving very generous gifts from Avril Harriman, that same Christmas, however, Pamela's son Winston received an airplane as a gift. (laughs) Pamela and Avril will make quite a powerful and influential couple in the Democratic Party. Pamela begins hosting what she calls issues meetings, and it turns out, if you can imagine, she's a phenomenal fundraiser. Pamela becomes really involved in determining candidates and making high-level decisions. Pamela will start the Pam Pack and was the first to recognize Bill Clinton's political potential. Pamela will educate Bill Clinton, take some ride under her wing, Bill Clinton acknowledges Pamela's importance in making him president. During her eulogy, Bill Clinton said that he would not be where he was if she hadn't been where she was. Clinton does repay the favor to Pamela Harriman by making her ambassador to France, giving Pamela that last laugh. She was going back to Paris but not as a courtesan, but instead as a powerful diplomat. Unfortunately, Avril Harriman does not live long enough to see his wife's success and influence. Avril dies in July of 1986 at the age of 94. Pamela, the grieving widow, had an empty casket buried next to his first wife, Marie. Pamela kept Avril's body refrigerated for two months, before having him buried in another plot where she would eventually be buried next to him. Biographer Christopher Ogden said about this, 
In life, Pamela had always been forced to share her men. She was damn well not going to share Avril in death. Now, with the vast wealth, fortune, riches of Avril Harriman, you know, there's going to be perhaps a nasty legal battle about what's remaining in his will. Harriman's children do take legal action against Pamela regarding their father's estate, as Pamela was left about $115 million. Again, this legal battle was very nasty. It lasted for years and was covered in tremendously trashy detail by newspapers and magazines. After it was all settled, Pamela's statement was, Thank God it's over, and I don't have to see any of them again. As ambassador to France, Pamela really does spend her final years on top. She was at the center of attention and power, able to use her charm, and she worked extremely hard to do a good job. She spent a lot of time with Jacques Chirac, who honored her with the Grand Cross at her funeral. In a perfectly fitting end to her extraordinary life, Pamela Digby Churchill Hayward Harriman, age 76, had a stroke while swimming in the pool of the Ritz Hotel in Paris. President Bill Clinton sent Air Force One to bring Pamela home. She had become a United States citizen during her marriage to Avril Harriman and was given a state funeral at the National Cathedral. Pamela never gave up on her dreams and was willing to take risks to make those dreams happen and most widely disregarded her critics. While many ridiculed Pamela during her life, Former Secretary of State Madeleine K. Albright said about Pamela, She was a central figure in the history of this century. America has lost a remarkable representative. The State Department has lost one of its most effective diplomats. And I have lost a friend. There was an interview that Pamela gave in her apartment at the American Embassy in Paris. This was in 1996. And I think it sums up her feelings about life pretty perfectly. The interviewer asks Pamela, Is there anything you'd wish you'd done differently? No, Pamela said. Really, no regrets? I consider I have had a very fortunate life. A happy life? Very, very. I drank deep of the well. And did she ever... Pamela Digby Churchill Hayward Harriman, the everything, everywhere, all at once swan, who will also quip, I really do love this line, I would rather have bad things written about me than to be forgotten. Who could ever forget Pamela, connecting so much of our journey together and truly living a life on her own terms? Investigators, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in and spending your time with me today. I am so grateful for you. Thank you for telling your friends about Done and Done, for your kind emails and reviews. We will be back with even more surprises in no time at all. And in the meantime, there is always more you can catch at patreon.com slash done and done. Always some good stuff going on over there. Until we meet again on our next Dunday, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating.
Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.